Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The latest move from the State Department. White House confidence, the State Department warning against Americans traveling to China. And we've said again and again over the last week that for the economy, for markets, what will matter is the way states respond, nations, people, corporations. And right now, things are throttling back even more. Yeah, it's 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 definitely uh, clearly spreading both economically as well as otherwise. Almost 10,000 cases, Tom. Yeah. Our, our team has worked tirelessly with Lisa and with Steve Engel reporting from Hong Kong and others to bring you the best we can clear discussion on this virus in China. Uh, Jennifer Rohn joined us from UCL in London the other day, and we're now thrilled to bring you from Baylor University, Peter Hotez. We've spoken to him many times uh, before, of course, uh, with the, uh, uh, the Tropical Medicine uh, National School at, at Baylor. Peter Hotez, I want to use a little bit of your heritage here and that is the moment decades ago at Rockefeller University where we really began to figure out virology. And you, of course, were part of that in the 80s. Are we that much smarter now about all this than we were in SARS or back when you were at Rockefeller University 30 years ago? Uh, we certainly are. And it's, uh, first of all, thank you for having me back. Uh, it's always good to talk to you. And no, I think we're in better shape uh, now than we were uh, back then, because we have learned some lessons, although we're still not perfect. If you remember the SARS coronavirus that emerged out of southern China, uh, scared everybody, shut down the city of Toronto back in 2002-2003, that woke people up. And in response, the World Health Organization created a, a new series of international health regulations to uh, beef up our security for health and border and virus detection, then the global health security agenda was put in place by the U.S. government and WHO, and, and so things are, are better than they were. Um, the other good thing that's happened is the pace of science has, has really stepped up. I mean, imagine we've gone from a brand new virus agent at the end of 2019, within a few weeks, isolating the virus, having its full genetic code, knowing how it binds to the right. lungs and people. It's, it's extraordinary. So... Um, that's the good news. The bad news is you can only accelerate vaccines so much because you, despite what the anti-vaccine lobby says, you still have to test them for safety. And that's the one thing that really has. Right. We developed, we developed a recombinant protein SARS vaccine that uh, had it manufactured in 2016 that we couldn't get the support right. to proceed through clinical trials. And and now we've just learned that these two viruses are actually quite similar. SARS and the end coronavirus, they bind to the same receptor, about 80% similar. So we may be sitting on a vaccine for this end coronavirus, um, but we still have to go well, through all of the safety testing and everything else. And that's the one piece in, that's tough to do. In the, in the blur of knowledge and pseudo-knowledge that we have, what's the compare here of this virus? Is it to SARS? Is it to a different virus I can't pronounce? Or is it to the Spanish influenza of 1919? What kind of thing is this? This is, uh, it's very much closely resembles SARS. Uh, the, the difference is it's not quite as lethal as far as we can tell. It's about as easily transmissible. Whereas SARS was affecting healthy people, uh, this one, uh, the serious cases, the respiratory uh, illness, the severe respiratory illness, mostly individuals 
uh, over the age of 60, mostly males, mostly those with underlying diabetes and hypertension, but a lot of people are getting seriously ill and requiring respiratory support. Look, this, this is what's going to happen. Um, uh, it, it's a tale of two different countries. In the United States, I'm actually not so worried. Uh, we've got a good team in place. We've, uh, we, we, thanks to the Chinese scientists, we got a heads up on this virus and we knew it was coming. Um, I, well, we will see an increase in the number of cases in the U.S., but it won't nearly resemble anything like what we're seeing in China or central China. Central China and China will be in free fall. Um, although we say 10,000 cases, some are estimating there's already 100,000 people infected because there's probably a lot of individuals with low-grade uh, symptoms. So this is going to sweep, unless we can get a vaccine in there, this is going to sweep across China. It's already shut down commerce between Hong Kong and mainland. It's, um, uh, it's, it's calling a fallen Asian market. I, I, I imagine massive economic losses in China, and that's well, going to affect local markets as well. Dr. Hotez, what's China doing wrong in their response to the virus that's leading to what you expect to be a rampant, widespread uh, sp- disease that is already perhaps hit 100,000 people? I think the Chinese leadership, uh, unlike in 2002, 2003, when they were covering up things and slow, on this one, they're good. But, you know, they're doing the best a person can with one hand tied behind their back because there's no vaccine. And when you have a contagious virus like this, ultimately, in the end, you, need a vac- you tend to need a vaccine to stop it. So I actually think the Chinese leadership is doing everything they can yeah. with all hands. In fact, they recognize the hit uh, not only to public health, but their, their economy and political stability. But um, the, the frustrating piece has been it's been slow to get our vaccine and the other four or five vaccine candidates out right, there ready right. for testing. If you're just joining us worldwide, Peter Hotes with us. He's dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College. He's been with us many times on surveillance over the years here on the Wuhan virus. Dr. Lisa? Dr. Hotes, is there any sign that the virus is mutating uh, into something that potentially is more lethal? Uh, we, we don't have any evidence at this point, and I, I don't think we need to postulate that. This is a, a virus that emerged out of the wet markets in, in, in Wuhan, uh, because it's a virus that jumps from bats to a second animal species and then to people, and now it's picked up human-to-human transmission. It's going by, in that sense, it's going by the same playbook that our two other big coronavirus epidemics did, uh, the SARS in 2002-2003, and then the MERS coronavirus out of the Middle East in, in 2012. Um, so I don't think we have to, I mean, mutation is always possible. I don't think we have to worry so much about that, but we've got to figure out how we can do everything to help China. And remember, there's also a million Chinese in Africa right now through their Belt and Road Initiative. So there's lots of commerce back and forth between China and Africa, whereas the United States has got a great health system in place to, to prevent the spread from with Africa. It's country to country. So uh, next to China, the other place I'm really worried about is Sub-Saharan Africa. And I think that's the major reason why Dr. Tedros at WHO declared the public health emergency. He's probably similarly concerned. Peter, forgive me for getting a little bit ahead of things at the moment, but once we've got past this and hopefully move on from it, what measures can we put into place in a country like China to make sure these kind of things don't happen or at least minimize the possibility of them actually happening? Well, you know, after the SARS coronavirus, the Chinese leadership committed to shutting down those wet markets, these exotic animals that are all, if you've ever been to one of them, they're all piled together in cages. Some are dead, some are dying. That's just a a recipe for disaster. That needs to be shut down. The other... Two other things need to happen. One, 
we still need to be do a better job at building up our vaccine infrastructure. This business of waiting for a catastrophe then to start, um, you know, we could have had this vaccine potentially ready to go back in 2016, 2017 after human trials. But, you know, we're too reactive. We, we, uh, we're like a little kid's soccer game. If you ever watch a little kids play soccer, the ball goes in one direction. All, everybody runs to the ball. And nobody stays behind to play defense. And we, we need to do better at that. I think the third thing is we, uh, we have to recognize this is our third major coronavirus epidemic pandemic in the 21st century. We SARS and MERS, now this. We have to start building an infrastructure specifically mm-hmm. for the virus, just like we do for flu, given not only its public health impact, but its economic consequences. Peter Hotes, thank you so much with the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Now we go right over to the authentic on-the-ground knowledge of Meredith Sumter of Eurasia Group. Meredith, I'm going to cut to the chase. Most of us don't speak Mandarin. John, do you speak Mandarin? I do not speak okay, Mandarin. I just wanted to check that out. Meredith, <laughs> what do you see in the Mandarin press? I mean, how is it different from the wall-to-wall coverage of this Wuhan virus uh, in English? Hey, good morning, Tom and John. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it, it, There's a marked difference in the way that sort of statewide media press, uh, more important sort of state um, organs of press are reporting on the, 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 the virus, then the more local level uh, media outlets or even citizen activist journalists who are trying to get more information out to the Chinese people. And what you see here is at the central level, there's really pressure uh, there's, there's pressure there to try to, to have more of a release of the public discontent with how Beijing has handled this virus so far. And the media is doing this by going after local officials who have withheld information uh, at the same time that they are circling wagons around President Xi Jinping as a decisive and strong leader who is taking action and mobilizing all resources to get ahead of the crisis. And that's why, Meredith, the media in China is considered state propaganda. It is always blame the local government and never the leader. This is from the FT, signing a critic, said the local government in Wuhan did not have the power to act decisively because they were at the bottom of a chain of command that started with the supreme leader, a Mao-era title recently bestowed on Mr. Xi. Is that a problem, Meredith? Regardless of what the media is saying, let's talk about the structure of government, how a country this large responds to a crisis so local so early. That's exactly right, John. And it it really, it shines the spotlight on the limitations of China's political system. And really, it's it's Xi's top-down leadership style, the one-party system top-down leadership style that contributed to the problem by making local officials fearful to act without authorization from Beijing. And what's notable here really is the, the Wuhan mayor, Zhou Xianwang, he accepted responsibility while subtly placing blame on the need to wait for Beijing's approval in publicizing the outbreak. Meredith, there was data overnight showing that Chinese factories were struggling even before the country shut down for the Lunar New Year holidays, as well as the worsening coronavirus outbreak. And I'm wondering how much energy the virus's spread takes away from Beijing to address some of the economic issues that are still out there. 
Oh, it takes a great deal of energy. But I think in terms of a, a social stability issue, uh, Xi Jinping is going to mobilize everything that he's got to try to focus on getting the virus contained first. And, and then at the same time, you, you see actions by uh, state uh, banking officials uh, to make sure that while there are obvious economic spillover effects broadly impacting the Chinese economy, that uh, because of the way that they're mobilizing these resources, we see fairly limited risk to economic stability uh, writ large. You have, um, you have Chinese banks that have been instructed to extend loans to cushion the negative effects of the virus. Uh, and we believe that the central government will intervene to maintain fiscal stability with, with uh, the central bank providing, likely to provide emergency liquidity provisions uh, to limit the stress on China's banking system. Meredith, just a final question on, on the trade story, just quickly. Where does this leave the agreement between the United States and China that was struck just a month or so ago? Where does the whole issue with the coronavirus and relations with the United States and China leave things? That's a terrific question. And, and really, it, the combination of Beijing's focus on crisis fighting and the economic disruption is likely to slow China's purchases of U.S. goods under that phase one trade deal. And let's be honest here, Jonathan, this, this, was, this was an ambitious projection of what Beijing would be able to buy even before the outbreak. So we think that the limited domestic consumption, uh, the, the slowing industrial activity means that China is going to be even slower to start to make those market purchases. Now, this is not going to derail phase one. Um, obviously, we understand uh, and Washington would understand why it would be harder for China to make good on those purchases right away. But the shortfall may put more pressure on Trump to defend the mm-hmm. deal later this year if Beijing is slow to regain, regain momentum in its purchases. Meredith, thank you so much. Meredith Sumter of the Eurasia Group, just riveting this morning uh, with her knowledge of China. respect to the, the spread of the coronavirus, and there is a question, especially to Goldman Sachs' call, uh, as, as you were highlighting earlier, John, which is that it will eat into second quarter GDP of U.S. by 0.4% to cut it down. Uh, this Marky quarter, Patel, yeah. yeah, or this quarter, excuse me, uh, thank you, Wells Capital uh, Portfolio Manager, Marky, as we look at a slight risk-off feel in markets, do you think that this is actually going to eat into uh, potential returns? Do you think that this is going to persist, or do you think that this is a buy-the-dip very small dip moment. I would say more more by the dip. We don't actually know what the impact on GDP will be in the U.S., but it's really reflecting a bigger trend, which is a move away from China outsourcing and also Chinese slower growth. So those trends are intact, and I think that's more important looking out beyond one quarter. Margie, looking at the commodity market move, we're down 11.5% on copper on the London Metal Exchange in just two weeks. It's been a massive move in the commodity market. Are we pricing down inflation in the bond market, Margie, is that what you're doing or are you pushing back against that move? No, I think that low inflation, zero inflation is is just going to be with us for the foreseeable future. So this makes a big call for the bond market then, Margie. If we're going to have low inflation, how can you make a, a call for high yields on 10s, on 30s through 2020? How difficult is it to do that? 
you really can't. You have to lower your expectation for what fixed income can be across the board, which is low to possibly mid-single digits in the high-yield market. So much, much less compared to returns on equities. Mr. Draghi, with the headline 18 months ago or so, looking out to the end of 2020, Governor Carney, I believe it was two days ago, Margie, looking out to the end of 2021, is Margie Patel beginning to look at a low-rate regime out farther than you thought even months ago? Have you extended your x-axis out? Well, I've been thinking we are in unthinkably low rates for many years. That's been my feeling. Yes, well, and, and, and it's been very profitable. We we're aware of your excellence on that. But what now? More the same, more the same. We've been at a one and a half, two and a half on the 10-year. If we break out, it'll be the low side. Margaret, do you think that the the equation changes materially if we do get a sustained a sustained inversion of the yield curve and increasing fear that we could be reaching stall speed? I'm not looking for an inverted yield curve. I think we're basically going to be looking at a uh, somewhat flattish yield curve, but I don't think it has any relevance well, for reflecting the economy. To be clear, we're talking about the gap between 10-year and two-year yields, because if you take a look at the three-month 10-year yield, it's already inverted, and the same with the two-year, five-year yield. So I'm just wondering, isn't that sending a concerning signal? Well, it's been that way for quite a long time, and it hasn't had any effect on the economy or on inflation or on business lending. So I really don't look at it. I just think the curve will be so low, and it is somewhat administered by the government now, that it's irrelevant for economic activity. Margie Patel with us, Wells Capital Management. Margie, you've had courage to say, look at, if, if yields are this troubled, look into equities, look at dividend growth and share buyback. With the elevated assets, is there a distinction between new cash flow or belief in cash flow being applied to dividend or being applied to share buyback? Which makes more sense to you? I don't think it really matters what a company does with its free cash flow. Uh, It's just a matter of a company choice. But I think that copper down, Amazon up, really tells you what the trend of the market is going to be over the next few years. Margie, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Wells Capital Management. And that's her magic. I love what she said there. Anthony Philipson has not only been the high commissioner to Singapore, but also, uh, John Farrell, directly involved in the exiting process in trade and partnerships to Europe as well. And John, I go back on this historic day to the clear memories of the morning after the Brexit vote, walking down the corridor at our London offices, and there, were, there you were doing a marathon on the desk. We had no idea where this would head on that morning after. I think the one thing people really didn't have a clue about is how long it would take, three and a half years, and we finally start to make a move. Her Majesty's Trade Commissioner for North America, Anthony Phillipson, joins us now. Anthony, always great to catch up with you. Walk us through it then, 11 p.m. UK time. What actually happens? Well, good morning to all of you, and thank you very much for having me on. Um, as you say, it's a, it's a historic occasion. It's a significant moment. Um, at 11 p.m. UK time this evening, 6 p.m. New York, uh, the UK will leave the EU. Uh, we will end our uh, almost 47-year uh, membership, um, but it will become a new chapter in our relationship uh, with our uh, European and our EU partners. We have an ambition to a close economic and defence and security and indeed people-to-people relationship. In London itself, uh, the Prime Minister will speak 
uh, to the nation uh, around about 10 p.m., uh, I understand, or 5 p.m. New York. Uh, there will be some uh, visual displays uh, around London, but I think uh, it will be a moment of significance and momentous, uh, and a momentous occasion, but it's just the beginning in a new chapter. Perhaps in name only, the rules will still apply. The UK will still pay into the EU's budget as well, Anthony, as you well know, through the rest of this year. 11 months we have to uh, secure a transition deal, I guess, secure secure the future relationship. So we're in this transition period for the rest of 2020. What is the government looking for? And have we established what the red lines are for the relationship between the UK and the EU beyond 2020? I think we have, to some degree. The political declaration that was agreed between the government and uh, the European, uh, the other 27 member states uh, in October last year gives us a blueprint for what that future relationship looks like. Uh, we will now be working out our own uh, mandate and negotiating position, as will uh, the European Commission on behalf of the member states, and uh, we anticipate those negotiations beginning uh, early March. And then, as you say, we have the rest of this year while we are in the implementation period uh, that gives business that period of transition and certainty uh, to, to work out the fine detail. And that's what both sides are committed to. Anthony, uh, earlier this week, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson coming out and saying that they are going to give Huawei some of the contracts to help build out uh, their infrastructure. How much does that complicate your job right now? That process was you know, incredibly deta- uh, thought through in incredible detail with a very, very high degree of focus on the security and resilience of our telecom system. Uh, it's, it's a process that's running for a long, uh, a long period in terms of how we approach what we call high-risk vendors. Uh, and the decision that the government took uh, reflects the particular circumstances for the UK. Uh, it is a decision that we have explained in detail to our American colleagues, including uh, this week when Secretary Pompeo was in London, uh, and we will keep explaining to them why we believe this is the right decision for us, why it does not endanger our own security uh, re- and resilience of our telecoms network, and why it is it should not affect the bilateral partnership uh, between our, ourselves and our closest security and trade and economic ally. Uh, Council General, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Anthony Philipson with the United Kingdom on this historic date. Burbage joining us now. Arsenal fan. Yeah. She is an Arsenal fan. That's not what I was going to talk about. Okay. But you can if you want to. That's great. I will leave that. I will leave that. I will leave that for you. Island Burbage. Uh, We're going to talk Amazon partner, co-founder of Passion Capital Investors uh, with years and years of experience uh, covering this industry. I mean, just how good were Amazon's earnings? I mean, does this give you a sense that right now the sky is the limit? And basically, Amazon has has a lot more uh, road to run here. It absolutely does. It really does. And by the way, we've got NFL matches now here in London, so I'm all about following NFL again, as well as the Premier League, too. Mm. But, um, yeah, no, the thing about Amazon is they do such a great job of managing expectations that then when they blow it out of the water, they really do blow it out of the water. Everyone was expecting that revenues would go up like they did, but everyone was a little bit you know, worried about maybe profitability, thinking about the costs that were going to go into fulfillment and to try and get everybody on the single day, same day, or next day shipping with time, and they still blew it out of the water. So in terms of the question about how much more runway there is to go, they haven't finished all the upgrades and the conversions to uh, next day delivery for Prime, so there's still a lot more to go there. And they've shown they can do that while managing costs. Uh, there's still growth in Amazon Web Services and Cloud, even though that's slowing, it's still massive, and they added $10 billion worth of revenue 
uh, from the year before on that. And then, of course, there's still Ed. So they are kind of the uh, knight in shining armor for the ad industry, at least from a regulator point of view, where they might be able to break up advertising uh, duopoly between Google and Facebook. So there's a little runway there, too. And then the one they still haven't really given us too much data about are the devices. Yeah. With Echo or even the use of Alexa, for example, and how ubiquitous we know that's becoming. We don't know how much value that's bringing into the bottom line, but that's something else they can still pull out of the hat. So Amazon now uh, on track to exceed a trillion dollars in market value yet again, uh, given the pop that we're seeing in their shares. When you talk about this growth, particularly when it comes to sales, retail sales, who are they taking business from most of all at this point? Well, this one, I think they're consolidating a lot of online sales. And obviously, we know the demise of brick-and-mortar retail. That's happening anyway. But in terms of share, they're clearly getting more and more share um, from other online retailers and e-commerce providers. The other thing I look at is that international growth was only 14% for them, whereas in North America, it was 22%. There's still a lot more headway and a lot more for them to gain uh, abroad, whether it's here in the U.K., Europe. Or another market outside of the home region. Eileen, I want to go to your expertise, and this goes back to you know you were 15, you were at Sun Microsystems, and you know a long time ago, and then you dashed over to England and did Skype, and all of this techie techie stuff is about network effect, and if you look at network effect, I mean Bezos has a network effect with Amazon, including the bandwagon effect, which is where everybody climbs on board. How are normal companies to defend? against the massive first-mover status and network effects that Amazon has wrought? Well, I think you're gonna, you can't actually come out and try and beat Amazon or compete with it on its own turf. You're going to have to come at it from a different angle, come up with a niche, especially area, and we've seen more direct-to-consumer brands and products come out. Um, and you've got to hope that you build up a beachhead or you build up... Um, a sort of a leadership position in a category that Amazon doesn't already dominate. So they're seen as a, you know, a general kind of e-commerce provider. Um, but you see brands, whether it's Allbirds for shoes or even Nike, which continues to dominate, and now they've got Paperfly shoes, there are going to be categories that Amazon can't compete with at the highest levels. And for that brand value, they're just now seen as a general fulfillment provider from a retail point of view. But I really think what what driving corporate values, the enterprise-side cloud services and software that they use. So Eileen, let's turn to politics now then, with that in mind. You've done a tremendous job over the last few years of working with the British government and expanding investment in tech, specifically in London, over the last several years. Just looking across the Atlantic into the United States at the moment, here we have a massive company, Amazon, with this huge cloud business now, basically providing all the capital for the e-commerce expansion. And a government, a Washington, D.C. scene at the moment, where a lot of these names, Amazon, Facebook, and the likes, aren't very popular. And I'm just wondering what the future looks like for them. What does it look like for them, Eileen? Yeah, I think there's a reason you're seeing all these companies spend record levels on lobbying. And I think Amazon's in a really interesting position. So I mentioned earlier, they could be the hedge against the duopoly in advertising between Google and Facebook. But on the other hand, with the ownership of Washington Post and Bezos' personal interests, and his uh, lack of friendly nature with uh, Donald Trump, he could be really the subject of a lot of scrutiny. And this Department of Defense deal, for instance, that Amazon lost for cloud services for AWS to Microsoft Azure, for example, is a really, really prime example of that. What would you expect from Bezos next? Does he just relentlessly stay with his strategic plan, or can Eileen Burbage see a twist coming down the road? I mean, I think Bezos is uh, pretty on top of his game. So I'm pretty sure he's got lots of contingency plans, 
lots of things up his sleeve, and I'm not worried about this business or its potential or its ability to defend from anything like that um, in the near term. Eileen, how concerned are you about antitrust cases against Amazon, given how much control they have, not only over their own products and sort of their, their clout there, but also with independent uh, independent shops that are uh, operating on their website that are not necessarily prioritized in search results? Yeah, I think that that is a concern, but it's probably, I don't think antitrust is as much of a concern to Amazon as it might be for Google and Facebook. Where I would be concerned if I was on the Amazon lobbying side or public policy side is what's going to come down the pipe um, this year with respect to tax treatment and whether or not they might get hit um, with really severe tax bills, especially outside of North America. How much more upside is there left in Amazon shares, do you think? I don't see um, an end in sight. I really don't. I think that they have continued to demonstrate solid, consistent, responsible growth uh, they continue to show that they can control costs. Um, they'll experiment when they need to. They'll acquire when they have to. They make strategic investments. Um, you know, their acquisition or investment, sorry, I should say, in Deliveroo here in the UK is, um, you know, being looked at by the Competition and Markets Authority, but they are continuing to innovate. And yet they also don't forget what really matters to retail customers in terms of fulfillment the same day or next day delivery. And even things like doing their own titles uh, for Amazon Prime to make that um, a more interesting proposition with actual media content. Eileen, so I don't see a lot of uh, ceiling to come. Eileen, thank you so much. Eileen Burbage with us today from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.